Broadcasting live from the Pro Business Channel studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Capital Club Radio, brought to you by Flock Specialty Finance. Please welcome your host, Chairman and CEO, Michael Flock. Good afternoon, and we're delighted today to have a special guest here, Reed Simpson. Reed is a seasoned financial executive with a great track record of creating value for his shareholders. His experience includes over 26 years of CFO positions with large and small companies across varied business information, software and services, technology and financial services in both a public and private environment. Reed's CFO positions include those within the Dun & Bradstreet Corporation, CCC Information Services, eCollege, GoGo, Asset Acceptance Capital Corporation, Career Education Corporation, and ShopperTrack. Reed was instrumental in the turnaround of Asset Acceptance Capital Corporation and a successful $438 million sale to Encore Capital Group in 2013. Reed has also led successful liquidity events at eCollege in 2010 and most recently in 2016 at ShopperTrack. Well, Reed, let's get started here. I mean, most of our listeners are from the debt buying and collections industry, and we're very interested in your experiences at Asset Acceptance. Before we get into that, though, I mean, when you're growing up, you don't dream about you know running a debt buying company or dreaming about collections. How did you get into this industry and become so expert and passionate about it? Well, first of all, I had no clue as a kid that I would be a CFO. <laughs> My father was a physician, a doctor, and he certainly wanted me to follow in his footsteps, but there was way too much school involved in becoming a doctor. So I eventually ended up in uh, in uh, the finance area, studied accounting at Michigan State University, and um, from there, um, wanted to embark on a career of uh, of, of success, hopefully, uh, to follow in my dad's footsteps of being a very successful uh, physician, albeit in a different uh, in a different in a different discipline. Okay, so from from Michigan, then, how did you get started into business? Um, what was your you know immediate aspiration? I, in fact, I think I told you told me that you drove to New York in a car without a job? Is that- yeah, so um, when I graduated from Michigan State in 79, I had studied accounting, um, got out of school. None of the big four accounting firms were interested in hiring me. Um, I wanted to get out of the Michigan Midwest area, and I did, in fact, pack my Volkswagen Rabbit that I owned <laughs> and drove to Manhattan uh-huh. with my then personal belongings, um, found an apartment in Manhattan and looked looked for a job and uh, eventually got uh, a staff accounting job at uh, Merrill Lynch down in Wall Street and uh-huh. that uh, started my career. So mm-hmm. um, of the the adage, the, the, the road less traveled, I certainly took the road less traveled uh-huh. <laughs> of uh, trying to get my career uh, kick-started in Manhattan. Okay. Okay. And then I guess you said uh, you spent a few years at Merrill and then somehow got into the credit information business with 
D&B down on Brass Street? Yeah, so I, I worked for Merrill Lynch for a couple of years and decided very quickly that I didn't want to do what I had gone to school for, which was uh, yeah. accounting work, yeah. right. and was looking for another vehicle to kickstart my career. And I uh, was lucky enough to get a job at Dun & Bradstreet Corporation as a internal auditor, mm-hmm. uh, which doesn't sound very glamorous, mm-hmm. uh, but it was a pretty cool job. I was able to travel the world for about five years doing right. uh, audits of their various businesses. So I got to uh, be exposed to all different types of businesses in different environments, different countries. And, you know, as a young kid um, in your early 20s, it was pretty cool to be able to Mm -hmm. get that level of experience and travel the world. And I think you told me that uh, you were in a group at Dun & Bradstreet who was led by a guy who was a very successful entrepreneur. I think it was Jack Murray. Was that right? Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, eventually, after I got yeah. done with my internal audits stint, one of my first um, divisional financial jobs right. was in Tampa, Florida, working um, for a business run by this guy, Jack Murray, um, very successful entrepreneur who had grown his business very uh, successfully sold it to Dun and Bradstreet. He eventually became a senior executive there, mm-hmm. um, and he was one of my first business mentors. Very cool guy, mm-hmm. um, very knowledgeable guy, um, sort of a good old boy from Virginia, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, I learned a great deal from from Jack. What was it about Jack that uh, inspired you? That uh, you know enabled him essentially to become a mentor and a leader for you. What what qualities about him did you admire and try to, I guess, learn from? So Jack had a had a a great way of building confidence for individuals in in his own special way. Sometimes that meant uh, aggressively challenging people and then giving them a pat on the back, either in victory or or defeat. Uh-huh. Um, he was always trying to teach you something new, not necessarily a uh, something to do with your discipline, but rather um, teaching you about leadership, how to manage people, how to feel good about yourself, how to treat people mm-hmm. um, uh, fairly um, while successfully running a business. He just had a knack of of doing that, building teams. And, yeah, 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 yeah. Great guy. But what was interesting to me when you were telling me the story was that I guess the company was DNB Plan Services that was Jack's originally. That's correct. Right? And then he sold it to DNB, and then I think it hit some hard times. Can you continue that? Yeah. So he he built the business from scratch, uh, grew it to over a hundred million dollars in revenue, sold it to Dun and Bradstreet. And what was Plan Services? I mean, what was the business? So Plan Services was a. Uh, TPA or a third-party administrator okay. for small group health insurance plans. So they processed claims, did customer service, did marketing, um, sales, plan development mm-hmm. for small group health insurance mm-hmm. plans, mm-hmm. and uh, made their money by uh, collecting a fee from the insurance companies that they were providing the service for. Right. And so then you said, I think it hit some, it hit a slump after DMB bought it. Yeah. So it was a very successful uh, business for a while. And then, um, 
the product that they were offering had um, some difficulties. And eventually, Dun & Bradstreet decided that they were going to uh, dispose of, of the business, and they did, in fact, sell it to a, a private equity firm uh, who bought it for likely pennies on the dollar. And then uh, eventually, Jack uh, bought that business back, mm-hmm. um, rebranded it, reconfigured it, and eventually took it public. So he made money twice on, on right. the company, right. um, which showed some of his uh, – Skill sets and in, in, mm-hmm. ingenuity, uh, in and, terms and you of, weren't part of it then when he bought it back. So. No, no, I yeah. was, I was yeah. long gone. I had right. by, by that time, I had, I had left on in Bradstreet, but I uh, followed the uh, the story of Jack and uh, still keep in touch with him today. Because one thing we try to do on Capital Club Radio is to identify the common denominators of success in in people's lives and careers. And when you look at the Reed Simpson, you know, resume or bio, you know, you've got a history of uh, building, rebuilding, turning around, uh, selling companies. And so, you know, I try to connect the dots here. And so from what what were some of the lessons learned then, I guess, at your DMB experience, or were there any that got you to asset acceptance? And, you know, there you were clearly hired as a, a CFO to turn around the business mm-hmm. and to improve the valuation of the company and potentially sell it, which you did. So is there a connection here or? Um, yeah, I think there is a common, there, there's a common thread. And, and, um, you know, part of this came about during my, Tenure at, at Dun and Bradstreet, mm-hmm. and then uh, some of the companies I worked for afterwards. I learned fairly quickly in my career that um, if you could add value and create, help create mm-hmm. value for a company, mm-hmm. um, you you yourself would be right. a valuable right. asset, and and um, it, it could p- progress your career. So. While I was at Dun & Bradstreet, I was uh, honing those skills in terms of how to help a business uh, uh, create value for shareholders, employees, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and customers. Um, but it, it's not a one-ingredient right. uh, recipe. Right. You know? right. Each situation is unique. Mm-hmm. Part of the puzzle is figuring out mm-hmm. where those triggers are and what you can do. Mm-hmm. To, to, to add value. So in some cases, it could be um, that the cost structure of a business needs revamping. Mm-hmm. It could be that they need better reporting and insights into mm-hmm. why their business is mm-hmm. functioning the way it is. Mm-hmm. It could be that um, the business needs an improved capital structure. But mm-hmm. uh, a CFO's job, mm-hmm. frankly, uh, is to help a company add value and be the individual to help orchestrate that. And mm-hmm. uh, part of it is understanding the value drivers of business. I, I know at your business you right. probably know what 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 those are and yep. what you need to work right. on to enhance value. That's that's the common thread that mm-hmm. I've been able to uh, to do over my career is come in, uh, evaluate the situation at hand. And figure out the areas to to focus on to help help add value. So when you got to asset acceptance, then the first thing you did, I guess, was to identify the existing value drivers or the 
barriers to these value drivers? Exactly. So exactly. Can so, you summarize what you yeah, saw so, when you so, first arrived? So when I first arrived at, at Asset Acceptance, um, which was you know one of the three large publicly traded debt buyers in the market, right? Um, and they were number three of the three, mm-hmm. um, and and for a reason, mm-hmm. um, they had um, had a very successful run, but after a certain point in time, uh, the growth started to dwindle a little bit. Um, why was and that? So the, the, the market, so, the pricing, or so the market was starting to get more challenging for all the participants. Pricing was was increasing. Um, access to capital became more challenging. The regulatory environment mm-hmm. became more challenging, and companies that um, didn't have a great capital structure mm-hmm. didn't have a good cost structure. Maybe we're lacking uh, compared to competition in terms of processes and the like. We're going to be more challenged than their competitors, and that was the situation with with asset acceptance. We had a capital structure that w- had become um, not as good as our competition. Our cost structure had become um, not competitive. Um, we didn't have as much purchasing capacity and access to capital that our competition did. And so it it made sense that those were the areas that we needed to focus on to try and improve those areas to become more competitive and mm-hmm. to add value. Mm-hmm. And so we mapped out a, uh, a fairly um, specific plan and timeline to tackle each of those items. Mm-hmm. And given that we were public at the time, right. it was also very important for us to communicate to uh, Wall Street, our shareholders, analysts, as to our intent. Because right. um, just making the plan isn't enough. You need to execute it, and you also need to be able to communicate people your mm-hmm. progress on, on the plan. And so mm-hmm. that's really what we did mm-hmm. um, when, when, I first, uh, when I first got there. And so – you know how how was the journey in this turnaround? Did did everything go as planned, or you know, did you hit some speed bumps? Did you have to change strategies? Oh uh, yeah, were you yeah. able to reduce the cost structure? Be able to change your capital or not? Sure, sure. Share with our listeners what. Sure. So, um, yeah. as with any plan, it's never going to materialize as you an- an- anticipate. Yeah. Um, so, some of the areas that we um, targeted came about. Um, on on time and on and on plan, some not so much. Um, the things that we had the most control over, which was our cost structure and being able to exit unprofitable mm-hmm. um, asset classes or mm-hmm. product lines, um, we did have a fair amount of control over our ability to to execute on those. So those came about reason reasonably. What were well. some of those asset classes that you exited? Um, well, we had gotten into some um, – uh, I'm not going to get into to all the specifics, but things that were outside the, the internal core competencies, ex- core, core competencies okay. of, of, the, okay. of the management team and of, and of the business. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, look, hindsight's always 2020. They seem like a good idea to get into at the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. But um, these were uh, asset classes that uh, – 
uh, weren't going to provide a good return for for shareholders. So we we ended up closing down mm-hmm. um, some of those business segments. Mm-hmm. We ended up selling to other parties that were better at mm-hmm. managing those assets and and mm-hmm. uh, were able to get some money for them, mm-hmm. you know, along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, on the capital structure side, that's a little more challenging. Mm-hmm. We uh, the company had. Um, had uh, done a dividend recapitalization uh, a few years before I got there, so we were saddled with some debt that mm-hmm. had benefited prior shareholders, but mm-hmm. was not helpful in moving the business forward. So, you know, one of the things we were trying to do with that was to reduce the size of that debt through paying it down, um, restructuring it, right. and eventually trying to get to get rid of it. Right. That's a little more challenging because you're a little, you're a bit more handcuffed by the markets and what you can you know what you can do with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't mm-hmm. want to raise equity mm-hmm. uh, and dilute existing shareholders to deal with that debt, so we, right. we just tried to sort of methodically um, work that down. And um, you know, as we progressed on this path, this turnaround path, we uh, you know the the street and shareholders began to mm-hmm. recognize it re- recognize us uh, for it mm-hmm. and you know the valuation of the company began to increase we got a better reputation we were more competitive mm-hmm. um, in the marketplace and um, you know eventually right. um, we were able to sell the business to one of our competitors and it became a strategic transaction for them and we were able to right. Um, get a good value for shareholders through the sale of the business to Encore Capital. And so how did you and the board reach that decision to to sell as opposed to continue the turnaround? Because you said it was on a trajectory where you were increasing the value. So if I'm a shareholder, you know, depending upon, I guess, the forecast of the CFO and the management team, you know, I might want to wait a little longer to see if I could get more value versus selling out at potentially, you know, a lower value than what I bought in at. So right. how, how did you deal with that as a CFO? And <laughs> well, the, yeah. the, the, the first contact was unsolicited. So, you know, we, <laughs> okay. we were, we were approached okay. about, okay. um, about, about selling, which is right. often what happens, particularly from a, right. from a strategic buyer. Uh, and then, you know, as they say, the dance begins, you right. know, you, right. um, you, uh, you sort of assess what, what mm-hmm. they're looking for, you assess how much um, value they see in mm-hmm. your business, mm-hmm. why they're interested in buying uh, you, and then mm-hmm. you know the role of the CFO and the board, et cetera, is to, uh, as part of that dance, try and maximize right. the right. the value that you're ultimately going to get. Right. But it involves a lot of uh, decisions and and analysis. Um, to your point. Um, do you there, there's always a difficult decision in do you sell now or mm-hmm. is your company likely right. to be worth more money right. by you know waiting uh, uh, by waiting a while and um, you know that's why public companies have boards who set up committees to evaluate that that's why investment bankers are yeah. you know uh, so employed yeah. uh, and, and, and make good money yeah. in uh, facilitating these transactions. They help you in that process, uh-huh. and um, you know we certainly tried to provide as much information to our board as did as did the bankers to determine uh, whether 
the ultimate transaction price was a you know was a good one for shareholders. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's a fairly you know involved process, lots of yings and yangs, ups and downs, and um, uh, discussion uh, to to get to that to get to that finalization. And what were the objectives of the board with this transaction? Was it simply price, or was there another objective? Uh, well. <sighs> You know they're they're looking to they're 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 looking to um, do the best for shareholders that they right. think think right. is think is possible and and so valuation um, to provide to shareholders at that point in time is is certainly their objective. They also have to look at uh, potential execution risk of right. continuing going forward and. Mm-hmm. Would uh, the plans that we had put in place mm-hmm. be able to materialize over time and create mm-hmm. additional value, mm-hmm. or is the price being offered mm-hmm. at that point in time mm-hmm. a fair one mm-hmm. compared to the execution risk? So, gotcha. You know, that's the, the trade off: execution it, risk going forward versus current value. Yeah, and 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 potential um, industry right. risks and mm-hmm. and issues. That may uh, may lie ahead as well. Um, you know, at the time we were there, the um, the regulatory environment was becoming increasingly onerous and, mm-hmm. and costly, and mm-hmm. you know, all of those factors end mm-hmm. up weighing in on the mm-hmm. on the decision making process. Well, yeah, certainly the environment had changed radically from when asset acceptance had been founded versus oh, absolutely. it was yeah. a totally different industry. Totally different industry. At, at that point. Yeah. Um, well, Reed, what were some of the lessons you learned then at asset acceptance? And were you able to apply some of these lessons from the turnaround and sale to other jobs that you've had since then? Sure. Uh, well, a- well abs- absolutely. Um, and I did work for a number of other companies afterwards. Um, uh, and, uh, one of, one of which my last company, Shopper Track, um, ended up in a, in a liquidity event as, mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, every time you go through a process like that, mm-hmm. you are mm-hmm. learning things. I don't care how right. many years you've been doing it. Each one is, each one is unique. So you learn, um, uh, you learn about how important due diligence is, mm-hmm. um, not necessarily only from the buyer or purchase, purchaser side, but also from the, the seller side. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're selling a business, due diligence is just as important for you mm-hmm. as it is for the buyer because mm-hmm. done correctly, right. it can facilitate the process and actually increase value. Mm-hmm. Done poorly, uh, it can diminish value and make the process um, all the more challenging. So I learned a fair amount about the whole diligence process in that, Uh uh, from that asset acceptance uh, experience. Um, In terms of sort of the turnaround plan um, that we executed at at asset acceptance, I, uh, I used a lot of components of that plan at another company I worked at called Career Education Corporation, okay. which is which uh, is one of the larger publicly traded for-profit education um, mm-hmm. institutions. Um, that was very much of a turnaround situation. And um, did they my, have cost structure problems too? They had major cost structure okay. uh, problems. Not not so much on the capital uh, capital structure side, but 
you know, this is a business that had grown to a, a very large enterprise over the year, and then the for-profit sector also um, hit some roadblocks. Um, just in general, the regulatory mm-hmm. um, environment became very challenging for right. that sector as well. And we had to do a lot of work um, in terms of evaluating what core assets of career education could be taken forward right. to add value, right. which ones we needed to get rid of right. to add value, right. and uh, what areas of the cost structure did we need to, mm-hmm. to tackle. So um, I learned a lot from you know, mm-hmm. my time at, at, at Asset Acceptance and developed – you know, a very similar approach and strategy to trying to, mm-hmm. to execute a turnaround at, uh, at career education. And, uh, it's proven to be, um, it's proven to be, uh, helpful for, for career ed. Um, mm-hmm. you know, they're in a much better place now mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and, uh, are, are, are beginning to thrive. I, I left career ed for this shopper track opportunity mm-hmm. before the, the full execution of that strategy was right. was completed, but it is being completed even as we speak. Mm-hmm. So the formula then for turnarounds is, I mean, looking at cost structure, looking at capital structure, um, I guess making sure, yeah, I guess when you're doing a transaction, though, making sure that it works both for the seller and the buyer. That was another. Sure, sure. Yeah, y- 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 yes, a- a- absolutely. Um when you're trying to complete a deal, mm-hmm. um, you, mm-hmm. you really need to to make sure that it is a win-win right. for for both parties. It's yep. it's like any mm-hmm. s- sale transaction: buying a car, right. <laughs> buying a house. Right. Um, you know, no one is necessarily going to be 100 percent happy with with the uh, with the with the end result, but you do want both parties to. Uh, to come to common ground and, and get the deal done. Right. And so I guess you left Shopper Track because a deal got done. Yeah, I was lucky enough to go to Shopper Track and I was there about a year yep. and yep. Uh, helped them sell the business to a strategic mm-hmm. uh, buyer in a, in, a, in a very successful um, uh, transaction. Yep. And, um, that was my last full-time CFO gig. <laughs> <laughs> I have now um, moved on. My wife and I uh, relocated from Chicago up to Traverse City, Michigan, which is a small uh, town up on the west coast of northern Michigan, beautiful place. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm now living up there um, doing um, some advisory work, mm-hmm. some consulting Work. Um, I'm mentoring a female executive at a local company. Mm-hmm. I'm doing some um, advisory work for a media company up in mm-hmm. Traverse City. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm uh, trying to keep my mind active right. and um, use some of my experience to help um, businesses that are in different phases of uh, growth and, and development. It's, it's a lot of fun. I'm really enjoying it. Right. So far. 
So you're moving then from a, a direct contributor as CFO to an advisor of companies in transition, shall we say, or growing uh, or maybe maybe not so much transition, but just in different phases of their of their of their life cycle. Okay. Um, okay. This one media company that I'm working with, they're looking to spin out a, a component of their media business and offer it uh, to um, a, a larger. Yep. Uh, segment of the market. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm doing some advisory work for a specialty finance mm-hmm. um, <laughs> company right. here in the Atlanta <laughs> area. Thank you, Reed. You yeah. might yeah. be familiar with them, Michael. Yeah, I think so. Um, and and certainly uh, the advisory role for each of those situations is is different. You're, mm-hmm. you're talking about something that's relatively new and mm-hmm. looking new to go to market versus mm-hmm. um, the specialty finance company that's mm-hmm. got a great growth track record and is looking how to kick mm-hmm. it into the next phase of growth. So mm-hmm. these are unique opportunities to draw on my prior experience and and uh, help these help these companies out. Yeah, for the benefit of, of our listeners, uh, Flock, especially finance, has hired Reed as a uh, part-time consultant to helping us try to optimize our cost structure, our capital structure, and our position in the market. And uh, with his years of invaluable experience from asset acceptance, you know, in the debt buying industry, uh, you know, there are a few people that uh, would be more, uh, you know, lucky to have than, than Reed. So we're very happy to have Reed on our advisory board. Um, so Reed, just as we wrap this up, um, wh- where do you see the debt buying industry headed? And, you know, after your years at asset acceptance, what kind of wisdom would you like to share with our, our listeners today? Well, um, you know, this, this, the sector has changed a, a lot right. um, over over the over the years and certainly since I was at as at asset acceptance um, it's changed even 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 further the number of participants uh, has gone from uh, you know a great deal right hedge funds private equity firms to really only a handful um, mm-hmm. so the you know the market is con- contracted. Um, the regulatory environment has remained um, onerous. I think it's a lot of people's opinion that the new mm-hmm. administration uh, in D.C., uh, maybe that will change and mm-hmm. and become less onerous. But you know, I do think the barriers to entry mm-hmm. have been have been set. It, mm-hmm. you know, the cost of compliance in the sector is is pretty high now, yeah, and you don't see that changing. I don't know that it's going to change. Um, I, don't, I don't think it's going to go down. Right. I think um, I think there's a certain bar that's been set in terms of compliance yep. expectations, and that um, companies looking to enter you know, are going to have to spend that money and set up right. that, that infrastructure. I don't think it's going to become more expensive necessarily, but I do think that the the level of required investment for compliance is one that's that's likely you know not going to change. Um, is there is there going to be a market for 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 the debt buyers? Sure, because mm-hmm. I think it's a sector of the economy um, that's been around for a while. Right, it provides banks and issuers liquidity. Um, I think that um, with the compliance. Environment maybe becoming a little more friendly. There might be more 
um, banks coming back into mm-hmm. the market um, that are willing to sell, which right. would create right. uh, increased inventory. And, of course, that can favorably affect um, price. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think I'm cautiously optimistic mm-hmm. that that the environment is, is going to – uh, is going to improve. Mm-hmm. And what is your perspective on the the ability or opportunity for debt buyers to migrate into other asset classes and leveraging their same experiences, skills, information to succeed in other asset classes? Because we at Flock, uh, who consider ourselves financing partners, not not lenders, but partners, we are trying to align ourselves strategically with other debt buyers and their growth objectives. And we're seeing today many debt buyers going into other asset classes, and so so are we with our capital. But can you share one, as we wrap this up, uh, your perspective on the ability of debt buyers to, to you know, branch out into other asset classes with but you know, maybe they have very little experience in. Yeah, diversification is obviously something that debt buyers have been trying to do for for a while. We, when when I was at Asset Acceptance, we we certainly wanted to diversify so as to not be mm-hmm. um, handcuffed by one specific asset class. Um, and a lot of the processes and. Um, data analytics and tools that have been used by debt buyers um, mm-hmm. for a while, mm-hmm. you know, underwriting capabilities, underwriting skills, using data to uh, effectively run your run your business and underwrite uh, effectively. Those processes and approaches certainly can be used on on different a- asset classes. Mm-hmm. The challenge is uh, that there's risk associated with with new asset classes that you're not familiar with. Um, so, you know, the key is um, to get as much knowledge and information and data, um, mm-hmm. you know, up front about those before placing mm-hmm. large bets right. on, on right. those classes. Um, you know, at Asset Acceptance, each year we would try and – I hate to use the word experiment, but we uh-huh. would we would try and expose ourselves to um, more uh, newer varied asset classes in small doses, mm-hmm. so as to learn mm-hmm. uh, the characteristics mm-hmm. as, and, and nuances of those of, mm-hmm. of those new investment opportunities. But I do think you know, given the way the inventive ways that data is utilized to underwrite and manage. Um, portfolios that um, the expertise that you know debt buyers and mm-hmm. companies like yourself have mm-hmm. in place mm-hmm. can be leveraged. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just how much risk do you want to do, do you want to take at any given right. time to to push that forward? But right. but yeah, and and it's why you want to develop processes and approaches that are repeatable. And um, mm-hmm. th- that you can can in fact leverage. It's where you're going to create value. And are the metrics of success in these other asset classes pretty much the same as in the traditional debt buying world for consumer charged off debt? I mean, yeah, IRR, yeah, yeah, ROI. It's, yeah, for sure. It's going to be you're going to underwrite uh, yeah. the investment at a certain yep. required IRR. You're going to mm-hmm. measure your progress against achieving that. 
Uh, but you know, measure all the drivers mm-hmm. that that get you there. So mm-hmm. the the collection characteristics may be different. Mm-hmm. The pricing may be different. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the risk profiles may be different, and so all of those come into consideration. But I do think that the 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 companies that have good use of data, mm-hmm. good procedures, good tools that they've honed over right. time, right. there is the opportunity to diversify successfully. Again, it gets down to one, uh, how much risk you're willing to take at any mm-hmm. given time. Mm-hmm. Well, Reed, thank you very much for your time this afternoon. You've certainly come a long way from those days at Merrill Lynch and Dunham Bradstreet and you know, asset acceptance, shopper track, and now you're a distinguished industry advisor. Thank you so much. I know our listeners will appreciate this podcast, and we look forward to having you back again sometime in the future. Thanks, Michael. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you for joining Michael Flock and his guests on the Capital Club Radio Show. For more information on future interviews, please visit us at flockfinance.com. This program is brought to you by Flock Specialty Finance, where clients are provided knowledge and insights to help them grow their business in complex and risky markets. Flock is more than a transaction.